Well, the supposed topic for the talk today is um, emptiness in the Mahayana. And I think we've referred to this a few times, that in the Mahayana Buddhism, that it's... uh, that the emptiness is much more central teaching, emphasized quite a bit. And as we've been chanting in the Heart Sutra, it is um, something in, for example, in Zen monasteries, they chant every day, reminding them about the emptiness of things. And um, so, In order to start this topic for today, I'd like to read a short story from this book. A Monastery Within. And it's a title of this uh, story is called Awakening. The abbess once said, if a person is always surrounded by music she may never imagine there's an alternative. But if after many years she comes to a place where there is no music, she may be surprised, maybe even shocked by the relief of not hearing the constant sound. If her experience of silence makes a strong enough impression, then when she returns to the world of music, She will not only hear the music, but also the silence, which is always here with the music. With awakening, you will know a peace, which is always here. So it's sometimes very hard to see the fullness of our human life if we're always living in concepts for always living in ideas, living in grasping, living in notions of self. And it might seem that it's completely normal and this is the way it is. It's so normal, it's almost invisible. It's kind of like they say, the fish doesn't see the water it swims in. I don't know if it's true, but the expression is there. And so we we might not see the notion, ideas that we live by unless we have some way of stepping outside of them or of silencing them or experiencing a peace that's apart from them. And then you can come back into the world of concepts, ideas, ideas of self even, and have a different relationship to them because then you know that there's always peace here or there's always emptiness here. Emptiness is form, form is emptiness. Um, self is empty and emptiness itself. It isn't that we end up having no self exactly, but we see that whatever we, is the self thing that we're doing, that self thing is really empty. It's a construct, it's dependently arisen. And so in that emptiness of self, the self which is empty, uh, is also to see the peace that's possible to have with the notion of, of, of self. You don't have to necessarily get rid of self, self-notion, but to see through it, through and through, 
and to see it as being in the way Guy talked about it as an appearance as opposed to a fact. Something that appears, that arises, is there. And so down through the centuries, um, in Buddhism there's been a lot of teachings about um, to, to free ourselves or to not get caught up in the world of views. And not just concepts in and of themselves, but the larger, more abstract views and belief systems that people tend to fall into and hold on to so much. So I'm going to read a passage from um, a Buddhist text, and I'll present it to you as the pre-exam, pre-test before you get the final on the study retreat. (laughs) To prepare you for what's coming. And then the test will be if you can tell me uh, what Buddhist tradition this comes from. Having views about what is ultimate, a person makes these the best in the world and calls all others inferior. As such, they have not gone beyond quarreling. When one sees personal advantage in things seen, heard, or thought out, or in precepts and religious practices, and then grasps at these, one will then see all else as inferior. What one relies on so to see all else as inferior is an entanglement, say those who are skilled. A mendicant should, therefore, not depend on things seen, heard, or thought out, or on precepts and religious practices. Nor should they make up views in the world by means of knowledge, precepts, and religious practices. Nor should they think of themselves as inferior or superior to others. They should, and they shouldn't take themselves as equal to others either. Letting go of what is grasped, the person free of clinging doesn't even depend on knowledge or follow dissenting factions or fall back on any kind of view. For one who is not inclined to either side of becoming or non-becoming, of here or the next world, there exists nothing to get entrenched in when considering the doctrines others grasp. Here, they have not the slightest preconceived concept in regard to what is seen, heard, or thought out. How in this world could one categorize the person who does not construct, prefer, or take up any doctrine? A person not led by precepts or religious practices who has gone beyond, who is thus, who does not rely on any belief. So where do you think that's from? Any idea? Those of you who have been studied students of Buddhism for a while? Hmm? What? Faith mind. Faith mind? So the Zen teacher, the, the third patriarch, verses on the faith mind? Maybe. Other possibilities? Hmm? Speak a little louder for my sake. The, the middle discourses of the Buddha? 
middle discourses, or maybe from the Buddha, middle discourses. Someone, you're pointing? Hmm? From me, from me. (laughs) This was from me. Oh, so this phrase about going beyond even equality, being equal to others, seems very Mahayana. So the idea is, you know, that you know, there's an idea in Buddhism that there's three kinds of conceit: the conceit that you're better than others, worse than others, and the conceit that you're equal to others. And that leaves the question: what's left? And what's left is you don't do the comparison game. Just don't, not, you just don't do that kind of activity. Okay, so this text is from a, uh, a, a, a larger collection called the uh, Atagavaga, the Book of Eights, Sutta Nipata, and it's considered to be the oldest teachings in Buddhism. And uh, scholars who have studied this and written about it will say that it's Proto Mahayana. <laughs> And it uh, echoes uh, or resonates or kind of some of the teachings of Nagarjuna, who seemingly also was emphasizing um, uh, not having a view. And, uh, yes? Wait a minute. Uh, you said it's the oldest teaching of Buddhism? That's what some people... No, it is from the... Well, it's, it's considered by scholars of early Buddhism most likely to be the earliest a record of Buddhist teachings, most likely from the Buddha. So wouldn't it be Theravada? Oh, Theravada didn't start with the Buddha. (laughs) (laughs) Theravada arose in India, but what we know of as Theravada, it's hard to know when it began, but um, it's probably, you know, Two, three, four hundred years after the Buddha, and what we know of what we know as kind of orthodox Theravada probably wasn't until about a thousand years after the Buddha. So, but uh, the Theravada is the only school of Buddhism that still relies on those most ancient texts, and the other schools of Buddhism that exist don't rely on them anymore. So, in that sense, they you know to the and so that you know usually it's the people who survive get to write the history. So the Theravadans claim there's a kind of continuous lineage from the time of the Buddha. And uh, it's a nice story. <laughs> that, that, that. Okay? Yeah, thanks. <laughs> so this, yeah? Would you name the text again? The, it's translated, the English translation is the Book of Eights. And, uh, but it's, uh, it's uh, in a larger collection that people know by the, um, called the Sutta Nipata. So here we have a variety of things in this ancient text that are uh, 
that in, you know it's it's not a it's not it's can be seen as a very radical text because of its anti-doctrine position, anti-doctrine doctrine, and so the uh, kind of pulling the rug from underneath the tendency that human beings have to hold on to doctrine or beliefs and take something as ultimate, and all Buddhists do this. Uh, Theravadan Buddhists do it, Mahayana do it. It's pretty much human nature to think that you know we have the ultimate. Because you know, you you invest your life in a religion. You know, you want to th- feel like it's worth your while, and it, and so it you know helps if you you know that then it helps if you kind of be, convince yourself that what you have is ultimate and like the best going, right? So that's nice. So it's you know, so it's reassuring, and and uh, and then once but once you have ultimate, this is the best. Then you have that which is inferior and less ultimate. And then you have wars. And Buddhist and Bu- history of Buddhism is made up of this kind of thing. Um, so the Theravada and the early traditions of Buddhism have been called by the Mahayana. Mahayana means the great vehicle. Uh, and they, and they, the most popular term for the great vehicle in in uh, by the from the great vehicle from the Mahayana. The most popular word they use for the Theravada and the, associated early Buddhist schools is um, uh, probably is best translated in, into English as um, as the um, crummy vehicle. <laughs> the, uh, the word hina, hinayana, hina doesn't mean lesser. Uh, well, it means, it doesn't mean it's like small, like lesser, like small. It means like Lousy. <laughs> so, you know, it's nice to know that here at Spirit Rock we're, you know, in a, in a lousy vehicle. You know, now that you've come here, we didn't want to tell you before you came, but, <laughs> you know, we wear it well, you know, being crummy and lousy, and we're kind of like, I like small, we're like a small. And um, and so nowadays it's nowadays you know in the last probably twenty years, uh, because of this derogatory uh, meaning of the word, it's very uncommon for people to use the term anymore in the West, and people are usually pretty careful not to use the word hinayana anymore um, because of the word literally means. Um, but you know this idea of you know better and worse and, and all this. So here it's suggesting a very different approach an approach where you don't hold something up as being ultimate, the best, and you don't hold something up as being inferior. Uh, you don't get into uh, these kinds of arguments about the nature of religion. Um, you don't get involved in, in uh, concepts and ideas. You don't take a stand. You don't latch on to what is seen and heard and thought out. And um, so you cannot even rely, so even to see something, you know, we do the, we're the insight movement. So if I see and really know something, I can take a stand on there, and then I know. But here it's suggesting you don't even take a stand, you don't even grasp at what you can see, even if what you see is accurate. It's a radical and teaching that pulls the rug from underneath a lot of ways in which people are involved in, in religion. It doesn't kind of leave some people kind of without their usual bearings. But the emphasis, but it's not leaving, and even things like precepts and religious practices, I mean, what? You're not supposed to hold on to those things? 
But the emphasis here in this text, which doesn't contradict, actually supports, goes along with most of the teachings of Buddhism down through the ages, uh, the emphasis is on not grasping, not clinging. And not, not grasping, not clinging is not exactly a doctrine. I mean, it's kind of like it's a teaching. You shouldn't grasp because it hurts. If you have a thorn, you should pull it out. I mean, to that extent, you know, it's a teaching. But, um, but the idea that uh, that's the emphasis is finding a way not to cling. And one of the things religious people cling to is their doctrines. And so we can not only uh, in letting go of clinging, we let go of doctrine. We don't base our life on doctrine. And we don't base our life on higher and lesser, greater and more ultimate. This earliest tradition, earliest text, didn't want to see anything as being ultimate, like ultimate reality, ultimate teachings, whatever. That's besides the point. That's just you know, holding up one to two flowers and doing this comparative thing. What's important, and it doesn't matter if it's ultimate or not, what's important is, are you free? Do you get freed? And that freedom is found in the releasing, not in picking up a better doctrine. You know, people go doctrine shopping. Um, and then it says, for one who is not inclined to either side of becoming and non-becoming, it's a kind of a technical word in Buddhism, the word becoming, but probably the most kind of in common, easily understood parlance of English, it um, doesn't, doesn't uh, rely on either existence or non-existence, that things exist or they don't exist. And that's what I kind of pointed out the other day when I held up the fist, right? Does a fist exist? If you say yes, I go like that. If you say n- no, then, you know, watch out. The, um, I mean, it is, it, the, uh, you don't say that it absolutely exists and you don't say it absolutely doesn't exist. It's a conditioned phenomena that arises depending on conditions. And as long as conditions are there, the fist is there. When the conditions are not there for a fist, the fist is not there. So the idea is not to make a claim that things exist or that things don't exist. Uh, and it's not supposed to be like this obscure, esoteric, uh, uh, you know, strange teaching that you can't quite get your handle around. There's nothing exists, everything exists. You know, what? how does it exist? It's just kind of like a fist, right? But every, you know, that's kind of obvious. But in a certain kind of way, everything is that way. So not to take a stand on the belief that things exist or don't exist. So that includes yourself. Do you exist? Does the fist exist? Does, does it not exist? In what way do we exist? We exist as conditioned phenomena that come together. And if those conditioned phenomena grasp, there'll be pain and suffering. And so the emphasis is don't cling, don't cling. So what does it take to learn how not to cling? That what kind of trust, what kind of wisdom, what kind of insight helps us so that we're, not, we're willing to go through our life and not to cling, hold on to things? is one of the great questions of human life. Are you interested in that? Is that you see the value of that? Or do you have some intuitive, maybe, or well-formed doctrine or intuitive sense that actually it's important to cling? And, you know, I'm with the, I'll take this Buddhism so far. But, you know, there's a limit, you know, because these Buddhists don't quite understand, you know. <laughs> you know, that for 2,500 years, Buddhists haven't understood that 
you know, clinging is an essential part of life. Thank you. And I'm going to cling. They do not have the slightest preconceived concept of what is seen, heard, or thought out. They say you have preconceived concepts. So to, 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 you don't come into a situation with prepared ideas, with prepared concepts, but you kind of a beginner's mind a little bit more to see rather than holding on to something. And one of the, again, one of the very strong preconceived ideas that we tend to bring into situations is uh, the idea of I, me, myself. And so we bring that with us everywhere we go. It's quite portable, right? Our self-concepts. And so, but it doesn't, it's not necessary to have it. Now, one of the problems with self-concepts is that some of them, you know, are problematic. So if here, you know, this conceit issue, so better, worse, this, you know, kind of conceit, I'm better, I'm worse. So maybe, you know, I need to be better, a better person. Maybe I need to be a better Dharma teacher. I need to be better than who knows who. I need to be the best. It's really good to be the best Dharma teacher. The person who is so brilliant in their teachings, they know exactly what to say to everyone without having to prepare at all. The person who um, uh, can put together the whole Dharma in one nice little package and um, so that it's crystal clear, but doesn't have to try. I don't know what, there's all these ideas that people have. So anyway, so I can be this person, has to be this way, right? And so sometimes I don't quite do that. So if I need to be that way, then if I think that you see me differently, then you might even see me, boy, he is lousy today. Boy, I can't believe it. He's going on and on like he usually does. (laughs) (laughs) Then, you know, if that comes towards me and that hits the concept, the idea, I need to be a good Dharma teacher. My job security depends on it. <laughs> and so it, then it activates this thing, right? Because it hits it. But if I don't have, if I don't, I'm operating on a concept or a self-identity, like I have to be the best or something. And then if you think I'm the worst, look what happens. Right? Or it's like this. If that's me with my big concept, big, big head, <laughs> you know, I might even make a nice sound if you run into me. <laughs> you know, if you hit me just the right way, or, you know, it might not be so nice. But, you know, if we just kind of get that self concept out of the way, I can hit as hard as I want, right? And it doesn't hit anything. It's very quiet. So we carry with us these concepts of self and uh, the world bumps into it. And we either make a lot of sound or we whimper or something. But, um, but you know, so what, what is it that hits? What, what, you know, so the world hits in a sense our attachments, our clinging, our concepts, our ideas. If those ideas and constant clinging are optional, then perhaps, uh, you know, when things come through, they just go right through. It's supposed to stopping someplace here. So the idea of emptiness, emptiness of self, is not just in a, you know, the idea that is abstract, 
But it's an idea that's meant to be, I think, deeply practical, that if we really understand this emptiness, then nothing lands. It doesn't, doesn't, doesn't hit any of our attachment. It doesn't mean that we become aloof then and distant. It, uh, actually, some people say, you actually, then you can be more intimate, more connected, because there's no barriers to what's going on. What Nagarjuna, the great Mahayana philosopher said, early philosopher, well, he's, the Mahayana say he's a Mahayana philosopher. It's just like, you know, we say the Buddha is a Theravada Buddhist, right? You know, uh, Nagarjuna probably wasn't a Mahayanist. But, uh, you know, I told that to a great... I, I, I studied this in my dissertation, and so I had good, good evidence. And so I told this to a, to, uh, a Tibetan scholar who's very devoted to Tibetan. And Nagarjuna wasn't a Mahayanist, and these are the reasons why. And, uh, and she, uh, she went pale. <laughs> it's quite, it was quite surprising to see. Partly because he's the foundation of Mahayana, so it's very important. But you know, he wasn't a Mahayanist. And um, but they really claim so. So, but he uh, now I forgot what I was going to say. So, <laughs> so you know, so there goes my you know. So luckily, just your thought, your you know, just, oh well, <laughs> goes right through. Empty, Empty I hope. <laughs> So um, what happened in India is that after the time of the Buddha, there developed different lineages of teachings. And before the so-called Mahayana arose, uh, there was the idea that 18 different schools of Buddhism appeared. So 18 different lineages of teachings and things. And uh, as those different orders of Buddhism developed, they uh, developed different teachings you know, similar related teachings because they all kind of had this original source. And of those 18 early schools, what became the Theravada was one of those 18. But it was only the only one that survived. But they don't have necessarily rights to being the earliest, you know, the ones that are most true to the Buddha because there were 18 other schools who have made the same claim, right? And they all kind of coexisted at the time. But some of them developed uh, in northern, northern India, and some of them developed some uh, ideas that are different than Theravadan Buddhism. And one of them was called the, uh, the Everything Exists Schools, called Sarvastavadins. And they developed the idea that everything uh, has always existed. All dharmas have, you know, exist in the three times, in the past, the present, and the future. And there's some, all dharmas have some kind of essential essence, called inherent existence, svabhava. And so that's, you know, that even though things are changing all the time, dharmas have this svabhava, this essential nature. And, um, and this was a fairly controversial idea in India at the time, and people argued against it and argued for it. And when the Mahayana arose, or say it differently, um, so that was existing there in India. Another idea that arose before the birth of the Mahayana was people who really got into this um, early teachings of emptiness. And there are three areas of emptiness, as I said. There's things are empty. The fist is inherently empty. 
but it's still a fist sometimes. But it's, you know, it's, not, it's empty of a true inherent fistness. It's conditioned, dependent arising. So things are empty. Things are, um, uh, it's possible to empty oneself, the process of emptying. And in that when, when the mind is empty of greed and hate and delusion, the mind is empty of concept of self, or the mind is empty of a lot of concepts, um, there can be a feeling, uh, the experience of samadhi or state called emptiness. And as we get closer to awakening, to nirvana, sometimes the experience of emptiness, the state of emptiness, can stand out in big highlight, in relief. It can be a very powerful experience. Sometimes the experience of emptiness is called the door to liberation. So in the, uh, in, uh, before the rise of the, of the Mahayana, some people got really into this door of emptiness thing. And they, they really, and they started this, uh, this idea that everything is characterized not by emptiness because it's arising and passing, but rather because everything is an appearance, like I said. And appearance mean that, and so the, things get a little bit murky or confusing when you say that everything's an appearance. Because, and why they get a little bit conf- easily confused is that yes, everything arises in the mind as an appearance. It's constructed in the mind. But it lends itself to the idea that we're too responsible for what our minds creates. And in the extreme version, it's like our mind is creating everything. Everything. And if we want to, we could change the world quite freely if we just changed our mind, how we think about things. And we we have a kind of collective agreement that we are supposed to you know, when we sit, uh, you know, sit with gravity and sit on the floor. But if we just reconstruct our thinking properly or differently, we could just as well be sitting on the ceiling. It's, uh, this is all appearances, and appearances are magical and be created and all that. So an extreme version, it can lend itself to that. No connection to any kind of physical reality. Physical reality doesn't really exist. It's all a projection. So, that's, so this early tradition, what's called the perfection of wisdom tradition, in the pre-Mahayana time, really got into this. And they started saying everything is empty, but not because of dependent arising, but because of, uh, it, it kind of represented or they projected their state of emptiness, the door of emptiness onto reality, everything they, and, and, and everything there. What was interesting about this was that as people, as the perfection of wisdom, the early Mahayana people, was called, but the, the Mah- again, the Mahayana claimed them. It's very, you know, who, who claims who, right? But this early perfection of wisdom literature, these people were, got really into this. And what landed, by saying that everything is empty, they were saying kind of like everything doesn't exist. Things are just emptier. Um, they lost touch with the Buddhist teachings on causality. And, and, and cause and effect. And they also, in doing that, they also then uh, lost touch with the Buddhist teachings on psychology. To understand that there's a psychological patterns or psychological things that are going on in the mind that you can understand and see so you can understand the nature of clinging and our responsibility and what goes on. And so it was all about the, either you get it or you don't. You see the emptiness in things. Nothing exists or everything is empty in its essence. And they really kind of emphasize it over and over and over again. And, um, 
and scholars of uh, in the last century, Western scholars who studied this philosophy, really loved it. There was a lot of books on emptiness, the emptiness of emptiness and all that. And what they tended to do was to pick out the emptiness passages of the text, Reflection of Wisdom texts, ignoring everything else. And, and, uh, and everything else, a lot of the other stuff in between the great emptiness kind of everything's empty kind of thing, um, is amazing mythology of a cosmic battle between a cosmic Buddha and a cosmic Mara. And that human beings are basically pawns or just kind of victims of this great big battle going on. And what happens to us it's really dependent on how this battle works itself out between Mara and Buddha. And I found it very odd that first, you know, what is this great philosophy of emptiness? I read these great philosophical works by philosophers, Buddhism and emptiness, and it's just, they laid out the beautiful descriptions of dependent origination and how everything, and then you have this thing, this cosmic battle, I mean, cosmic scale of Buddha and over cosmic time and Mara and, how do we understand that? And so my theory is that when human beings stop understanding causality, they still need to be able to explain how things happen. And if they don't understand causality from their own psychology, their own self and their, how the mind works, they tend to project it in a kind of magical way or, or mythical way out into the world around them. And so then they would create this, you know, this idea that yes, there's there, they, 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 nothing here they can do, but there's this great big thing going on out in the world. And so it's kind of a little strange to see these two, this emptiness teachings together with this kind of mythology. One of the greatest emptiness teachers, emptiness philosophers of, uh, in China was a monk named Xuanzang. And he was, uh, uh, there's a book called something like the monkey that talks to this monkey with uh, Chinese tales of Xuanzang going to India. He's a great hero in China because he did this huge trip to, from China in the, I don't know, the fifth century to India and lived in India for many years, collected texts, and he brought a lot of Buddhist texts back to China and translated them. And he was a great philosopher and one of the great travelers, philosophers of human, humankind. And um, so he was a great, you know, he knew emptiness inside and out. He studied it. He studied India and China. He wrote treatises on it. He's a great exponent of emptiness. But on his trip, to, you know, across the Silk Route and into India, and um, at some point, uh, way back or something, he was caught, captured by robbers, bandits, something. And they were going to kill him. So they took him to some place where they were going to kill him. And uh, he survived. I don't know how it, wor- how it worked that he survived, but they were planning to kill him. And so, what does a great philosopher of emptiness do? I mean, emptiness is the ultimate, it's a true nature of reality. And you, you know, that's the doorway to liberation. So at the moment when you're going to be killed, you know, that's the time to be empty. <laughs> that's the time to focus on emptiness. What he did was he prayed to Maitreya Buddha. So again, this is a Buddha that's going to come far into the future, part of the mythology of Buddhism. So the question is, how does this teaching of emptiness coexist with the mythology of Buddhism? Is a question that some Westerners, like for myself, have wondered, what's, how does this work? How do these two things work? And where is, is there a fuzzy line sometimes between 
teaching emptiness and everything's appearance and being maybe uh, accept, very accepting of mythic views of reality and how things are. Now, when I, when I was practicing in the Mahayana tradition here in this country, in the West, um, I think that people there were, in Western terms, somewhat sophisticated. So they see, saw the mythology as being all uh, archetypes and kind of, you know, and myths, you know, not, they're not really real, they're just myths. And so they are, they, you know, they just teach inner truths. And so they're great. But I don't think that's how it was in ancient, you know, in the old days, that people saw it as being real. So, so we had this Sarvastivadin school the, who believed that everything exists in some kind of essential way. We had these early perfection of wisdom people who wanted to say everything, you know, doesn't, kind of doesn't exist. It's all empty in its essence. And there's no causality. It's just things just are. And then came Nagarjuna. And we have no idea if Nagarjuna, this great so-called Mahayana philosopher, knew about either of these two things, but probably he did. And his great treatise, uh, Root Verses in the Middle Way, in, in, when you read them side by side against the Sarvastavadins and against, against this perfection of wisdom literature, it certainly looks like what uh, Nagarjuna is doing is, is a, not supporting those ideas, but a correcting for them. And in fact, not only correcting for them, but restating the uh, teachings of the historical Buddha in a certain kind of philosophical, fancy way, uh, as a, almost like a critique or as a corrective to this perfection of wisdom literature. Uh, to, em- to emphasize again, dependent origination. That if you really want to understand emptiness, you don't understand it by projecting an empty mind onto reality, but rather seeing how things arise and pass, come and go, and how they do so dependently. And, it, and then he emphasized that seeing this dependent arising of things, it, he also then said, any kind of view that holds on to things is not accurate. So he, so he kind of emphasized not having any views. But not having any views doesn't mean you go around kind of blind. I believe it means you go around, you see, you see rather than have a view. So if you, again, if you can see my fist, and if you see me go like this with my fist, open and close it, and then do you now hold on to a view that there, a fist essentially exists, or a fist doesn't really exist? You don't, you don't need to have that kind of view at all. You just see that it arises out of causes and conditions. You see it sometimes there, sometimes not. It comes and goes, it passes. So a big emphasis in much of Buddhist tradition is to have this insight, this seeing of how things arise and pass, seeing how they arise dependently. So that any tendency to get stuck on a view that this really is, is loosened up. So Nagarjuna is kind of adding this kind of in a philosophical way, this great philosopher. Now the Mahayana took this up big way. So Nagarjuna is like one of the founding fathers of Mahayana. And as the Mahayana developed, it had both the perfection of wisdom, kind of mysticism kind of idea of emptiness. We had Nagarjuna's idea of emptiness. And these kind of uh, evolved and developed and blossomed in a variety of ways in Mahayana. So what you find in Mahayana is many different kinds of emptiness teachings. You don't find just one. And so if someone says, well, the Mahayana is emptiness teaching, you say, which one? 
you know, what's going, you know, how does it work? What's what goes on here? And um, and uh, and then you can also kind of look kind of behind, to the side of when they teach emptiness. Um, what other teachings go along with it? What other doctrines? What other views go along with it? And how much mythology, or how much magic, or how much uh, is, exists, or how much how much do they fall on, on the spectrum of appearances? From yes, there is a world out there, but mostly we reconstructed in our mind. Versus, um, uh, there, there's nothing really out there. It's all just projection of the mind. It's, it's kind of a spectrum that exists. So we can look at different teachings in Mahayana and say, where do they fit in that spectrum? And I've heard some teachers are they're really far on that end where, you know, nothing really exists. It's all projections. It's all being created. It's all mind, mind only. Um, the um, so in the mix of all this came uh, the uh, Heart Sutra, and uh, Heart Sutra is a lovely text. In many ways, I, I, I gave a copy of this to my teacher in Burma, a great um, uh, Upandita, very strict, kind of scholarly, committed to the ter- true Theravada in a strong way. And uh, you know, I thought he would not want this to trash it quickly, but he 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 gave a whole Dharma talk on it. And this is he this is exactly what we teach. This is it. He said. I mean, he kind of ignored the Avalokiteshvara part. Mm-hmm. <laughs> But, you know, the five aggregates are empty and was released from all suffering. All dharmas are marked with emptiness. They neither arise nor cease, they're neither defiled or pure, neither increase nor decrease. You know, he's all, you know, this is all part of the insights that come with vipassana. And he gave a great talk on this. Um, and um, Ron Browning recorded it and he had it in his Dupanita shelf. And that recording disappeared. I always wished we'd saved it or had it, but I suspect that Upandita wasn't so eager to have his Dharma talk on a Mahayana text known in the Burmese world that's kind of a little bit conservative. But I don't know what happened to it. The... um, So all Dharmas are marked by emptiness marked. You know, this is interesting. So yeah, I hope you're still with me. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You what? You're not with me? Yeah. What? You want me to go faster? I know. Is the beginning of the Heart Sutra uh, an argument with the um, Sivastavadans? Ah, oh, this is what I wanted to say. Yes. Yeah. So what happened with, as the Mahayana developed, the Hinayana school that they knew was the Sarvastavadins. The Mahayana developed in northern India most for the most part. So they knew the Sarvastavadins who believed in this essential nature of dharmas. And they were arguing, coming out of the garden and other things, there is no essential nature, the fixed nature to them. And so their idea, part of their idea was all the, these Hinayana people believe in the essential nature of things. And then they projected that on all the 18 schools, early Buddhism. And so Theravada got criticized for beliefs or doctrines it doesn't have because by association with this, by this, with the Sarvastavadins. And the, as the Mahayana developed through time and centuries, they lost touch with Indian Buddhism, the early schools of Buddhism, and they just con- continued with the idea that all the early schools were Hinayana and had the belief that 
um, that dharmas have an essential nature. And as Sally and Guy have pointed out, I'm hoping by now <laughs> that you appreciate that Theravada does not have this view, that it can't hold that view because things are so radically dependent, uh, dependently arisen, so radically uh, part of this whole world of appearance and things. Um, so, a little digression, if I may. Um, we've talked about the three characteristics. And the word characteristics implies the characteristic of something. And there's, there's, and there's, I think this kind of teaching is very important. It's an important part of Theravada. It has value. But it's interesting that the Buddha in the ancient sutras does not use the word characteristic to refer to impermanence, um, not self, and suffering. But he uses the word sanya, which is perception. These are three perceptions. So here now, characteristic has to do with the nature of things. Perception has to do with the nature of the perceiver. So it gets closer to Guy's idea of appearance. That's important, what goes on. So the Heart Sutra um, is a very interesting text. And it has this teaching, which um, therefore given emptiness, so here, all dharmas are marked by emptiness. Or the earlier, form itself is emptiness, emptiness itself is form. It's not negating form. It's not re- negating anything in reality. It's simply saying what's in reality is empty. So it's not negating the bell. The bell is there, but the bell is empty of any inherent existence. The, the, the bell is empty of, be, of somehow self-existing. It exists because causes and conditions come together. And if those causes and conditions come together in the right way, uh, then it will be, be there. Right now, one of the conditions for that bell to be a bell, we have to have just the right temperature on this earth for it to be a bell. And if the temperature changes, you know, not a very wide swing, the bell is just going to melt and will be long gone. <laughs> you know, we're dependent you know, and certain things being just right. So, um, so in that emptiness, given emptiness, there is no form, no sensation, no perception, no, f- uh, no form, no sensation, no perception, um, no consciousness. These are the five aggregates. How are they not? They're not there. One of the classes, one of the ways of interpreting this, they're not there in their essential nature. There's no true form. There's no true perception. There's no true sensation or formations or consciousness. It's dependently risen phenomena and it's not there in some absolute way. And in fact, these words are just concepts in themselves. They're kind of wide concepts for something. They're pointing to something, labels. But, uh, but what's there is the dependently risen phenomena. And so we don't get caught in these words. We don't get caught with things exist, but we see that they don't exist in some but what we have is things arise and pass in a certain kind of way. No eyes, no ears, no nose, no tongue, no body, no mind, no sight, no sound, no smell, no taste, no touch, no object of mind. Uh, neither ignorance or the extinction of ignorance, neither old age and death. This is the twelvefold chain of dependent origination. So all the important early teachings, they're saying no, no, no. Including the Four Noble Truths. No suffering, no cause, no cessation, no path, no knowledge and no attainment. With nothing to attain, a bodhisattva relies on 
prajna paramita, the perfection of wisdom, and thus the mind is without hindrance. Without hindrance there is no fear. Far beyond all inverted views one realizes nirvana. Beautiful. So if you can see things as empty, have the wisdom, the insight. Prajna means really insight more than wisdom. If you have the perfection of insight they can see, then the mind will not have a hindrance, not be caught anywhere, and then there's no fear. All Buddhas of the past, present, and future rely on prajna paramita, and therefore attain unsurpassed, complete, perfect awakening. Then here becomes interesting. Therefore know the perfection of wisdom as the great miraculous mantra, the great bright mantra, the supreme mantra, the incomparable mantra, which removes all suffering, it's true, not false. Now, why they emphasize this mantra thing? You know, I mean, it was all pretty good philosophy and insight and practice until then, but now mantra. The word heart, ridaya in Sanskrit, and that's in the title of this, in English we often think of heart meaning kind of like the, here, maybe the core, the essential. Um, and that's uh, not what ridaya, ridaya means heart. But that's not what the word Ridaya meant when this text was created and given the title. The, in ancient India, it was uh, Ridaya also meant a dharani, a mantra, which has kind of magical qualities to it. So this is the dharani, the mantra of the great perfect uh, wisdom sutra. So it gives it a little different flavor on what it's about. Than if, and in fact, it's been used, the heart sutra has been used down through the ages as a protective chant for its magical qualities. When I was in the monastery in Japan, there was a monk who lived in rural Japan before he came to the monastery. And he told me that living in his home temple out in the countryside, one night he saw a ghost. And so what you do in that tradition, if you see a ghost, is you chant the Heart Sutra. And he told me he chanted the Heart Sutra and the ghost went away. So that was nice. So now you know what to do. If you memorize it, it, has, it can be useful for you. But therefore, it's a great mantra. And then it says, proclaim the Prajna Paramita mantra, the mantra that says, Gate, Gate, Paragate, Parasam, Gate, Bodhisva. In Japanese Zen, because mantras are efficacious by their pronunciation, they chant this in Japanese. Well, in Japan, they chant it in Sino-Japanese Sanskrit. So, the, you know, the way the Chinese would pronounce the Sanskrit, and then how the J- Japanese would pronounce the Chinese pronouncing Sanskrit. <laughs> and um, so, uh, Alan the other day gave us a sample. Maka hanya haramita shingyo kanji zaibo zatsugyo jinanya, on and on. And then the, but especially the gata gata paragata parasam gata bodhisva is never, that's just kind of, it's always, even in English, we chant it in Sanskrit because mantras have this kind of special thing going. And what it says in, in, in Sanskrit is gone, gone beyond, gone completely beyond. It's a nice thing in English. I like it, like it, but we keep it in Sanskrit. The um, so it points to how in the Mahayana, the teachings of of emptiness often got 
connected to other things besides philosophy or insight, but often to this other kind of approach to practice that, that um, you know, I'm a little bit, I feel comfortable calling it magic, but, um, you know, it's uh, somehow a whole different thing going on that we're tuning into. So this idea of uh, there's something else taking care of us, something other, other process happening here. Um, and then we come to um, a little bit to emptiness in Zen, and I'm running out of time. Time is empty, <laughs> the concept. Time is, time is more empty and less a concept, more ephemeral than your bladders. <laughs> Even if your bladders are full, they're empty. One of the Prajnaparamita people who are so into this emptiness thing would say that everything is equal. Because everything is empty, everything is equal. So, you know, the people who are responsible for Spirit Rock with your full bladders will not be happy if you pee in the hall here. <laughs> Everything's equal, it's all empty equally, and <clears throat> you know, it's all concepts. <clears throat> so it's, ob- you know, you can, you, can, you, can, you can make fun of these things a little bit, <clears throat> but, but uh, the purpose of making fun of it is so that we don't get caught up in the wrong, kind of rarefy, reify, or get caught up in some naive idea of what we're pointing to. It's very powerful and significant, this day of emptiness. It's meant to help us not to grasp. But it's not meant to wipe off the slate, concepts, ideas, differences we have, what goes on. But it gives us a chance to question it and look at it. So something like time, you know, is more conceptual than a full bladder. It has a different kind of way. So how do we relate to that? The notion of, you know, myself as being better and worse than others that's concepts that also has a kind of a different reality, different kind, it's all empty, but it's kind of different thing. It's more, if you can see that conditioned nature of it, then you can put a question mark behind it. So it's really that way, you know, like Brian Katie, is, is it true? So we came to, um, uh, to, <clears throat> So here's a em- kind of emptiness teaching, that uh, version of it, the way that I kind of learned it in Zen. So you have to listen for the emptiness, it's very in here. They don't use the word empty in this, so you have to kind of listen for it, to really, to really hear it and understand it. And I hope that the sum total of what we've said so far, the emptiness teachings in this will just jump right out for you. And you understand how profound it is. So the title of this is called Wisdom and Compassion. When it was time for the monastic community to meditate, the new nun headed for the meditation hall. Placing her shoes on the shoe rack, she looked down and saw they were not lined up parallel to each other. This helped her to see that she was slightly distracted due to the excitement of her first day in the monastery. Letting go of her distraction, she looked more carefully at what was in front of her. She saw that her shoes were old and worn. Remembering when they were new, 
She reflected on how all things are transient and how quickly they change. Soon, she thought, I will be an old nun in this monastery. Reflecting on how precious each moment was, she reached down to straighten her shoes. Doing so, she noticed that if she moved them to the left, then there would be space for another pair of shoes to the right of hers. Thinking of the other monks and nuns who were coming to the meditation hall, she gently pushed her shoes to the side. Happy, the new nun entered the meditation hall. Do you hear the emptiness? So in Zen, emptiness is found in the details of your life and how you care for it. It's not separate from your life. It's not removed from your life. But it's found in how you open and close a door, or how you place your shoes, how you talk to your friends, how you eat, how you care for people. And as Nagarjuna said, emptiness makes all things possible. That emptiness means that we're not stuck, but we can step in and move the shoes and see the situation carefully. And we can, we're not stuck in our own suffering and who we are. And there's something very meaningful about every detail that you encounter. How do you care for it? What do you meet when you meet it? Who are you when you meet it? Can you meet the shoes and move the shoes aside to make more space for someone else and in that process disappear? So there's the emptiness of you there. So in Zen, that's what I learned. That's where you find emptiness. So that's a little introduction to emptiness in the Mahayana. Mahayana has many, many more teachings on emptiness. Some of them are quite profound and beautiful and uh, well worth studying, provided you don't take them as doctrine. Let's uh, sit quietly for a couple of minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.